What if I told you that you have the power to make a profound impact in your community? Welcome to Voice to Change podcast by Jane Doe No More. We're glad you're here. I'm Jocelyn Mementa, and our podcasts feature powerful stories from survivors of sexual crimes, as well as specialists in the field of trauma and healing. Our goal is to provide hope, resources, and the ability for you to play a role in creating positive, meaningful change for a safer world. Thanks for listening. Joining me to launch this first podcast is Donna Palumba, president and founder of Jane Doe No More. Welcome, Donna. Thank you, Jocelyn. You were a victim twice. Can you take us back to that night when it started? Yes. I want to take you back to 1993. At that time, my husband and I had been married for 12 years and had two small children. My husband was away for the very first time in our marriage. And the children and I had a busy day. It was a Friday evening. We were home in bed and I was asleep by 10 o'clock. The children were asleep long before that. And I awoke to the sound of footsteps. I was sleeping on my stomach and I looked up and an armed masked intruder entered my bedroom. I had very little time to react. I screamed. He covered my mouth with his gloved hand, put a pillowcase over my head, bound me, tied my hands behind my back, and cut my clothing and raped me. At some point, he had put the gun to my mouth and then moved it to my temple. I felt my head was on fire and I saw my life flash before my eyes. He then flipped me over, put the gun in my back and said to me, if you call the pigs, in his words, I'll come back and kill you. And at that moment, I thought he may leave and I might survive. And so I reasoned with him. I told him that this was between between him and I, that I could never identify him, that he didn't hurt me. I wanted to say anything I could to make him go down those stairs and I did hear him leave. I heard him walk down those stairs and shut the door behind him. And I ran to my children as soon as I could unbind myself. And both of them were untouched. And at that moment, I honestly was filled with gratitude that I had survived and my children were untouched. And I thanked God for that. Who called 911? I actually had to run to a neighbor because he had cut my phone lines. So I made sure the home was secure. I ran to a neighbor's and the neighbor called 911. I used his working phone to call family members. And soon there was a very active scene at our home. There were police walking around, family members. And one of the officers suggested I go to the hospital that night. I did. And a sex crimes kit was conducted. DNA from the perpetrator was found, and I was treated for injuries. I had a scratched cornea, my eye was patched, and lacerations were noted on my wrists. You were a victim twice. What happened the second time? A few weeks after the crime, I was actually back to work. We had obviously lived differently since the crime. We had to break the news to my husband when he arrived home. 
the next day, but I was well on my way to healing and actually went to the police, the lieutenant in charge of my case, to give him information that I thought may be helpful. I went to the police station and I was re-victimized in the worst way. I was put into a small interrogation room, actually read my Miranda rights, and told that they had rock-solid evidence that I purposefully lied to the police, which was ridiculous. I asked him to show me the evidence, and he did not. He went on to threaten me, to tell me that I had everything to lose, my children, my husband, my career, my reputation, unless I told him what really happened. And I know full well I told him what really happened, so I was at a complete loss. The room started spinning. I felt sick to my stomach. He finally let me go after over an hour of this torture and under the condition that I would come back and tell him what really happened, he would put the recorded tape of our interview in the drawer and the case would be closed or he would come find me and arrest me and my picture would be in the paper the next day. Well, you never came back. Instead, you fought back. I absolutely fought back. I was thrown into a world I knew nothing about. Right after that happened to me, I literally could not eat or sleep. The weight was dripping off me and through the strength that my family provided and my faith, I was able to pick myself back up. We sought legal help and I learned more about the crimes of sexual assault, of child sexual abuse, of rape, how misunderstood and stigmatized they are. And I decided to fight back because I could not imagine another victim going through what I was going through. And so we had an internal affairs investigation conducted, which was useless. So then we took the next step to actually sue law enforcement. We had a civil case against them. It took seven years to go to trial. And they tried to stop me at every turn, but I sought the best and brightest people that I knew. I had the DNA resampled and I was making progress. Who was leading the investigation? This happened in Waterbury. So it was the Waterbury Police Department. The Lieutenant Douglas Moran was in charge of my case. We reported his behavior to the captain, Robert Moran, who turned out to be his brother, and they headed up sexual crimes. And when I think about how horrendous their behavior was and how damaging it is to a victim, it really stirred in me a passion to want to change things for future victims. And that is why I filed suit. And finally, in 2000, we were told that the trial would begin in 2001, early January. This is the trial for the lawsuit? We filed a lawsuit against police for negligence. Tell us what happened after you filed the lawsuit. What was resolved? How was it resolved? So the civil suit took place in January 2001. And it lasted one month. I would go into that courtroom every day with my husband by my side and my parents and friends. And I watched as officer after officer swore to tell the truth and covered up for one another. 
It was absolutely brutal. Finally, Dr. Henry Lee took the stand and he talked about the proper handling of a crime scene, how the entire perimeter should have been cordoned off, how fingerprints and photographs should have been taken and forensics called in. And then Dr. David Johnson from Yale Post-Traumatic Stress Center took the stand and he talked about the fact that I was well on my way to healing after the crime when this attack, a second attack by the police who I had thought were there to protect and serve was in many ways more damaging than the rape itself because I was so vulnerable at that point. And then amazingly, Neil O'Leary, who is going up in the ranks at the Waterbury Police Department, he was deputy chief, I believe, at that time of the trial. He dared to tell the truth and he went against his fellow officers and said there was not one shred of evidence to prove that I had done anything but tell the truth. And after that, a jury of 12 found these officers negligent. And that was the beginning of an amazing turnaround of events. And the most amazing turnaround of events was the fact that the perpetrator was caught. Yes, amazingly, after 11 years, in 2004, this chief of police, Neil O'Leary, actually connected the dots based on DNA alone. The perpetrator was found because he had attacked another young woman and she reported to the police. A voluntary DNA sample was taken from the perpetrator, John Regan, and we would find out it was a perfect match to the DNA, in my case, 11 years earlier. But John Regan was somebody you knew. He was actually a man leading a double life. He was thought to be a happily married, church-going father of three who had grown up with my husband since kindergarten. They played football together in high school, and it was devastating. It was so bittersweet because we were so grateful to finally know who had done this, but it was just too much to bear for my husband that it could possibly be someone that he knew that was a good friend. Had he been in the home, your home before? He and his family had been in our home before multiple times. And after the sexual assault, was he in your home? I remember four years after the assault, we were at our family home cottage in in Clinton by the shore on vacation. And he came by to visit and it just sticks in my mind because that was four years after the crime. And it just to think that we welcomed him and gave him lunch and it just, it's horrifying, really. Devastating. Yes. And what else is devastating is that when he was found with irrefutable DNA evidence, he could not be arrested for the crime he committed because of a statute of limitations that had run out six years earlier. And so he was arrested for kidnapping and he had the best attorneys that money could buy, was out on bond and attacked again. This time he crossed state lines and attacked a 17-year-old girl. Thankfully, she got away, but he was getting more aggressive. There was a tarp and a noose and a syringe and a sedative in his van when it was pulled into evidence. So thank goodness that he was caught. So you had to fight back again. 
Yes. I, I found it unbelievable that even though we had irrefutable evidence, he couldn't be arrested for the crime that he committed. You took a different direction. What did you do to make sure that this would not happen to somebody else? So all along, as I was growing in strength and I was getting a better understanding of how misunderstood sexual crimes are, I began to think there's more that needs to be done. And I knew that I had done nothing but tell the truth, and yet I was blamed. And then I learned that most victims do not come forward. Over 80% will never report because of fear of not being believed. But it is so important to come forward because if we don't, the perpetrators continue this behavior. And most perpetrators have many victims. So I really was moved to take a step forward and actually be public. And that was difficult because I come from a private family. My husband is very private. And, you know, honestly, to this day, he would have preferred I stayed behind the scenes, but I was truly compelled. I felt like I was called to do more. I decided to form a nonprofit organization. I had served on boards before, never dreaming that I would start my own. But I really felt that this mission was something that I had to go forward with. And so in 2007, I formed Jane Doe No More with the help of the best and brightest people that I knew as board members, as mentors. And putting my marketing hat on, I formed Jane Doe No More and timed it with the airing of a Dateline show on my story. There was a two-hour show that aired nationally, and it was a, a great way to launch the organization. And our mission at the time was to improve the way that society responds to victims of sexual crimes. And I was openly sharing my story. And it was amazing to me, Jocelyn, that when I shared my story, so many other people, men and women, would come up and tell me that they too have a story, that they are a victim, yet they remain silent. So it just it really drove me to do more. And one of the first things that we did was to advocate for a change in the law. We went to Hartford and we talked to legislators about the fact that our laws need to keep up with the science that is now available, that the laws that were written with the statute of limitations on sexual crimes were written before the technology of DNA had advanced to where it was. And so I'm happy to say that Governor M. Jody Rell, with me by her side, at the Waterbury Police Department, the very building where I was re-victimized, signed into law the removal of the statute of limitations on sexual crimes with DNA evidence in the state of Connecticut. Was Chief O'Leary next to you? He was. He was standing right by my side, and my parents were in the audience. It was, it was a very, very special day. What more do you want to do with Jane Doe No More? Well, now that we are 16 years old, I, I am so grateful that we have a team of passionate survivors and supporters who share 
my mission to create a safer world. And our mission today is to empower survivors of sexual crimes to find their voice, which in turn advances their healing. And then we have now a team of survivors that go on to educate others. We have 60 survivors now that have gone through our Survivor Speak program, work with professional coaches to help them articulate their story. And then we go out and speak. We have our Safe Student Initiative where we're talking to students from middle school through college and having crucial conversations about healthy boundaries, sexual respect, what it is to give and receive consent, and how to become an active bystander so we can create a safer world. We are out in the community at libraries and Rotary clubs and wise and any any place where a group meets because this topic is so important for everyone to understand because we all can play a role. There are so many aspects to your story, so complex. Can we go back to the impact on law enforcement? Yes. One of our most important audiences are first responders because we know that they're coming in contact with that victim when that victim is the most vulnerable, when they are in a state of shock, when they have been traumatized. And the way that first responder makes eye contact, speaks to them, their tone of voice, their body language, everything matters. And so we have worked with law enforcement to create training. It's called Duty Trumps Doubt. We created an award-winning video that's eight minutes in length that is often used at roll call and in training purposes for young recruits, but it's also good for anyone. As a reminder, you must put your preconceived notions aside and begin by believing that victim. So you actually changed the process of how law enforcement would investigate a sexual assault crime. I'd like to think that we're we're helping to change the process. There is training in place, but this is such a nuanced, and as you said, complex crime that so much attention needs to be paid to the trauma-informed aspect of it, that you approach a victim, understand that they may not be as coherent as you might expect them to be. They may not be answering in the way that you expect them to be and that you need to have patience and you need to build a trust with them so that first responders actually understand that it's in their benefit because if they can create that relationship with a victim, that victim will be more forthcoming and remember more and be able to advance the case. How did you choose the name Jane Doe No More? That is an interesting question. You know, again, from a marketing perspective, I wanted something that was identifiable, something that, you know, was a name that meant something. I was referred to as Jane Doe in newspaper reports and medical documents, and that's typical for a victim of a sexual crime. But at the same time, you're protecting them, their anonymity, but you cannot relate to them. And every Jane or John Doe, for that matter, that's a victim of a sexual crime is a person a real person who has a name and a face and an identity. And so when I came forward, I wanted people to know that I'm not ashamed that I'm a victim. I have done nothing wrong. It's not my fault. And let others know it is not their fault. And hence the no more is actually my handwriting saying no more. 
No more stigmatizing. No more blaming the victim. No more shame. You are doing it emphatically. Yes, absolutely. It's also the title of your book. Yes. I was fortunate enough to be able to work with an investigative journalist, M. William Phelps. And in 2012, we published the book, Jane Doe No More. It's my whole story told from an investigative standpoint from Matthew Phelps. And and at, at the end of each chapter is my perspective from a victim going through this journey. If I have to tell other people that they shouldn't have shame and that they have nothing to hide from, then I need to come forward. And you've inspired all these other people to share their stories. I I think of them as Donna's army. <laughs> That's nice of you to say, Jocelyn. But honestly, they they help build me up. Together, our voices are stronger. And, and truly, I could never, ever have done what I do without an, an incredible team behind me, in front of me and beside me. Where can survivors find resources? So we have our website, janedonomore.org, which has resources on it. And I'm happy to say that we, a couple of years ago, formed a closed Facebook group called JDNM Survivors for any victim of a sexual crime. And I want to also underscore the fact that there are male victims and we have several male victims on our team. And as you can imagine, the stigmas associated with male victims is complex and layered and difficult. You're talking about training folks to share their story. How do you decide someone is a good candidate to do that? We have an open process where people can apply and then we have conversations with them. This is not a workshop for people that are recent victims, certainly. It really is a program for survivors that are at a place in their healing where they truly want to share their story. And not everyone does, and that's okay. How does someone request for a speaker or program? That would be through our website at janedonomore.org. There's applications, there's contact forms, and we're happy to hear from anyone who is interested in having us put on our program or come and speak to their group. You speak a great deal about this. You're out there frequently. How emotionally difficult is that for you? You know, Jocelyn, it doesn't get easier, truly, but I do know that it makes a difference, and that's what gives me the energy and the strength to keep doing it. You have such great faith, strong faith. Yes, absolutely. I don't know where I would be without my faith, truly. When I really am at a place where I'm lost, I just sit and pray, and I'm given the strength to keep going. So there are dark days for your dark moments? Yes, absolutely. I think every victim of a sexual crime, even those that grow to be strong survivors, have dark days. And that's one thing that needs to be understood is that sexual crimes are not something that just happens and it goes away. You don't get over it. It's something that is lifelong, but there is hope and there is a path forward. And that is truly what Jane Don't Know More is all about. How can someone get involved, Donna? Through our website. Again, we would love involvement from anyone that has an interest in any of our programs. We are constantly looking to grow our team, to build the expertise we have at the table from board members to volunteers. 
survivors. Our team is growing and we cannot do it alone. What special events do you have annually? So we have two. We have a golf tournament in the fall, which is very popular, very casual event. And then we have our gala, which is a little more formal in the spring. And it's a wonderful event where we honor different people and we share stories and there's a lot of celebration and camaraderie. What is the money used for? The money that we receive goes directly to our programs to educate others. And we are not a federally funded organization. We rely on the generosity of wonderful individuals and organizations, businesses, and that is how we are able to do what we do. Looking forward, what are you looking to do to expand? In terms of growth going forward, we would love to continue to build our survivor team and to grow, to grow our program so that we are in more schools and in more community centers, providing self-defense classes to more women and girls and helping men as well through our John Doe No More initiative. How can someone donate or sponsor a program or event? Our website where you will find areas where you can get involved, sponsor an event, or certainly donate. We are so grateful for any financial contributions. Donna, before I let you go, what would you like to say? One final message. I just would love to tell the audience that we know that this is a difficult topic, but it is so important to have an understanding of it, to not be afraid of it. My take-home message is to normalize the conversation surrounding sexual crimes so that they're better understood and this will aid in prevention and it will also help survivors going forward. Donna Palumbo, president and founder of Jane Doe No More. Thank you. Thank you, Jocelyn Mementa, for leading the conversation on our first podcast series. Thank you for choosing to listen to the Voice to Change podcast by Jane Doe No More. We would love for you to share this episode with your friends. You can find more resources and learn about our programs at janedonomore.org. Follow us on social media. We look forward to staying connected.